for February 17th, 2020. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 607, The Banging Scheme. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. I'm your smart, funny friend, Matt, and that's your smart, funny friend, Pete. Hey, Pete, how are you doing? I'm good, Matt. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. You sound so concerned. There's such tenderness and kindness in your voice. Thank you very much for for uh, wondering how I'm doing. I'm doing just great, Pete. And And you? You're doing well as well? Yeah, I think so. It's been a good weekend, I think. A little bit tiring after being on the road out there all weekend, visiting some family, but back in the saddle and doing all right. You know, I uh, in my most recent most recent job change, I don't drive to work anymore. I, I commute on the train and having a non-car commute versus my last job where I had about a 45 minute car commute is like the, the difference in my mood on a daily basis is astonishing, right? And like uh, driving is uh is labor right it takes a, there there are people who are just paid to drive you know i mean mm-hmm. they're they're not a wage cuz they're not employees <laughs> god forbid crazy. yeah it's yeah. not a no well, some some of them i suppose truck drivers are are you know employed by someone but the the um the so i'm getting getting away from my point which is that you know dr- driving is work it takes a toll on your body it takes a toll on your mind or uh, maybe not a toll but it costs something you know and that like mm-hmm. uh that um you don't really think about that uh, in trip planning that like there is almost a recovery period that you need when you, uh, you know, no matter how delightful the, the, the destination, the, the journey does take a little energy to, uh, to, to get it done. Anyway, that's a, it's a little digression that, that no one asked for. And, and, and just to add to that, I find that, um, that uh, riding the train uh, here in LA, our, our newest uh, light rail line, the Expo line to work into Santa Monica every day. Like I get, um, you know, I, I do a crossword on my app or I do, you know, I read something or I listen to music or a podcast or something. And like having that time, being able to kind of clock out for that time and sort of mentally make a transition between home and work in a way where I don't necessarily need my attention engaged in quite the same way as I did if I were operating a motor vehicle uh, is a, you know a much gentler and and kind of um, more rejuvenating way to do it. Awesome. Do you have a basic amount of personal space when you ride the train? No, uh, <laughs> no. It's actually this. It's really wonderful that this light rail line has been such a hit. But one of the consequences of that is that you know it is. Uh, um, I, I mean, sometimes you're lucky and, and get a seat, but you're always, you're always in bodily contact with someone else, almost always, you know, unless you're going at a weird, unless you're going at, at a weird time. It's not as bad as, you know, the New York, it's not as bad as like, uh, I don't know, the six train or something, um, in New York, which is like, um, I don't know, uh, that, like cattle car conditions. And it's, it's not as bad as, as, you know, the, the pictures you've seen on the internet of Tokyo where they employ pushers to like pack the bodies in to, uh, to, to the carriages. Not, um, you know, not even uh, cattle car conditions, more like sardine can conditions. But the, uh, the LA Metro isn't, isn't quite there yet, though. Um, and, and also we don't have, we're not a train city. So the social norms around like bringing bicycles on the train and, and so on, those things haven't developed yet. 
Well, they don't necessarily develop when you're a train city either. <laughs> so <laughs> it's funny just because I have the ex- opposite experience where I've been commuting almost exclusively by train for the past, say, 17 or 18 years. And it has just as the amount as the population of the area has increased, but the train capacity has not, the train has become more and more crowded. And it gets to the point where and also more and more delayed where you're in, you know, you're stuck in a tunnel with a whole bunch of strangers and people all up in your grill touching you. And it has gotten to the point where the train I get to work and it's just I'm just infuriated. I'm just totally thrown. My concentration is shot. Right. I'm just a ball of rage. And if there are occasions with a nice day out where I ride my bike, even though it's additional physical and mental labor to get from home to work, I'm so much less angry, even though I am cycling on the streets of Boston, which have a reputation for perhaps undeserved for being murderous to cyclists to a large degree. Uh, I think it is to a small and and non-zero degree, but I have not been murdered yet. And that's the only data point I care about at the moment. Uh, I know that's very narcissistic. I shouldn't say that. I should care. I do care that people get hurt, but it's I don't I don't know. I feel like as much as it is kind of scary to ride a bike in city traffic, uh, you know, I just I get infuriated by losing all my personal space and and being jostled, jostled and pushed and stuck on these trains. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just getting old, too old, too big. Uh, I'm looking forward to actually moving to a situation where I might be taking more of a light rail and less of a subway in the hopes that I might get a little bit more breathing room so I can actually, you know, do a crossword puzzle or Sudoku like I used to be able to do on the train years ago. Mm. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe I I should just go to work much, much earlier, which I'll probably do once I have a kid. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. We, uh, it's, you know, it's funny, Pete, like we're, we've become an age where we can like talk about you back in the day with a a certain amount of certain amount of authority. Don't you, don't you think things were better? when we were coming of age versus now when the uh when we're not when we are of age when we have come of age (laughs) i mean some things are better but other things are not better i mean one thing i would say is i think i don't know this isn't really the topic for our podcast today but a certain pop culture thing i will say is that i am continually kind of amused and frustrated and mystified by the set of virtues or faults that young people seem to ascribe to boomers who appear to be anybody born between 1890 and 1970. (laughs) And it's, and it's sort of like, Oh yeah, you know, they didn't know the people before the boomers to them. Old people are the boomers. Yeah, right. They, did, they never experienced what it was like to watch the people from their parents' generation get old and adopt a lot of the same sorts of stereotypical, or at the very least, maybe not adopt them per se, but provoke similar sorts of reactions, have similar sorts of public conversations in various sorts of representative or less representative minorities, right? Like, you know, it, the idea that, uh, at some point, all the old people will be gone and we'll finally be free uh, is is something I don't know. There's just a certain sort of statistical short sightedness that comes from that statement, at least in terms of having a best case scenario that you yourself do will have a chance to get old someday. I don't know. It's just funny. It's just funny to like have, have to think, you know, when you watched Mad Men, the boomers weren't Don Draper. They were Don Draper's kids. Yeah. It's like, uh uh, and and uh, and I and I knew the the folks you know who were the Don Drapers and a lot of them were pretty great but a lot of them did exactly the same things that the people are doing now and probably the same things that we're doing now and the same things that other people after us will be doing to a certain extent I don't know you say the thing, the thing talking about getting old and watching things change and you watch the same sort of crisis happen multiple times. One thing I'm very conscious of when I think about it, and I think this does sort of relate to our topic today, is uh, the degree to which I 
expect my observations that I've had in the past to be predictive of what's going to happen in the future. So like, I feel a certain sort of smug, smug sense of superiority to all this, right? Being like, well, you didn't know old people back before this, they were the same. And it's like, well, you think that, right? Because you want to confirm, you think that the things that you experienced before were caused by things that are causal and weren't just random, right? And there's not just, you know, that if the factors are the same and the causes are the same, then the outcomes will be the same. But like, you know, maybe it turns out that the lessons that you learned were attributable to the fact that you just happened to be in the place where you were to see the things that you saw as opposed to the other way around. I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting to look backward and determine uh, you know, what lessons did we learn when we were kids and how did they interact with the world that we experience now? And then looking around us to other people who are younger than us, experiencing those similar sorts of situations. Are they learning similar lessons or different lessons and putting aside a sort of naive attachment to our own perspective on things? What can we say about these sorts of problems that tend to recur? So for that, I guess, is my segue to our topic for the day. If you wanted to carry it forward, yeah, unless I, we have any sort of announcements that we wanted to talk about. I do. I have a, I mean, it's, well, the idea that everyone is doing it is definitely germane to the, uh, germane to the, to the topic today. So Pete, I had, uh, I had coffee with someone today. Go on. <laughs> uh, I had coffee with a, a, a friend of overthinking it with an overthinking it member today. One of the people now, Pete, I'm sure you're asking what is an overthinking it member? You what know? is an overthinking member? That's, I, I, and, and as I was sure, you were asking it. So, uh, so much for you and your naive, calling my attachment to my, uh, assumptions naive. I was assuming that you would ask that. And, and there you did, asked it, prompted exactly, uh, as planned. Why you have learned from experience and it has borne out as predicted. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Pete, uh, overthinking it members. I mean, if I had to think of sum up overthinking it members in one word, that word would be hero. Uh, overthinking it members are those, those people, those members, those, those people like you listening to the overthinking it podcast right now who have decided to support us with a little bit of cash, who have decided that the entertainment value or other value, the, uh, the, the entertainment value or the integrity, the sports integrity that they get from, uh, from spoilers, Matt, spoilers from, uh, the overthinking it podcast is worth, uh, supporting with five bucks a month. So if you'd Go to if you click on the link that is uh, in the show notes for this particular show. It's right up at the top. You can't miss it in your your podcast app right there. You just look at the show notes and there it is. If you tap on that, you'll be taken to a page on the World Wide Web on on the website overthinkingit.com uh, that explains that you can give five bucks a month to us. Uh, or if you uh, are feeling like uh, you got a little cash right now in your pocket, burden a hole in your pocket, you can prepay for a whole year at, uh, at I think it's forty nine ninety nine. you know, and, and uh, save two months on the, the, the year, uh, as opposed to paying the, the monthly price, save 10 bucks right there, 10 bucks and a, and a penny. Um, and so if you, uh, if you cross our palm with, with $5 American, uh, we, uh, will, give you our sincere thanks you will have the the warm fuzzy feeling of knowing that you are supporting uh overthinking it and paying for our server costs and uh and such like that uh we we do this at at uber wages so it's not a it's not exactly a living but it is a it is nice to defray some of the costs and to have a, a nice token from from our listeners that they they consider what we do valuable and they really uh uh give back based on the the 
uh, fun and entertainment that they get. And also we do from time to time some extra things for members only. We record some extra little podcast snippets. The question of the week, which used to be a feature of the main overthinking it show, has migrated to a sort of side uh, podcast that is available to overthinking it members. And we do that periodically and post it up in our digital library. You get also, you know, all the, the digital download stuff from uh, from our store for free, the the overview, our alternative commentary is on the movies that we love and you love, the uh, book club, the Overthinking It book club, where we covered 1984 and a few other, uh, including the Pete cast, Pete, Pete Fenzel's foray into solo podcasting in the digital library. So there are a lot of benefits um, to becoming an Overthinking It member, but I think the one uh, the one that most people talk about is uh, is just the, the feeling of knowing, feeling good that they know uh, that they're given a, uh, back to to a show that they that they like, and we appreciate that. We are honored by it. It is um, people use humbled in the in the wrong way. Uh, they use humbled at moments when they're exalted. You know, it's like, oh, I've won this Academy Award. I'm just so humbled right now. No, you're you're the opposite of humbled, right? Like uh, I, I I lost all my money in the stock market. I'm humbled. You know, I won an Academy Award. I'm I'm exalted. I'm uh, you know at the top of at the top of my profession, and we feel at the top of the world when uh, when anyone gives uh, gives us a little something for for overthinking it. So Pete, that's who overthinking it members are, and it came to my attention through. A series of coincidences that there is an overthinking member who I have never met, whom I have never met, who uh, lives near me, uh, who lives right in my neighborhood. And so I actually dropped an email and said, hey, would you like to get coffee sometime? Feel free to ignore this email if you uh, don't don't wish to be contacted again. But uh, uh, I happen to be your neighbor. And if you'd like, we should go out and get a coffee and uh, uh, say hi and meet the other and, and talk for a little while. And, and I did that today, Pete, with, uh, with an overthinking member, Adam K, uh, the, the member. And since we were looking for, uh, a topic for the podcast tonight, I asked Adam K, what, uh, what should we talk about? And he said, well, I don't know if you're a sports fan. And I said, I'm going to stop you right there. Adam. <laughs> You know, if I'm a sports fan, uh, but it turns out that Adam is a, a big baseball, baseball fan, like makes a, a yearly trip, traditional trip to spring training um, every year and gets a great deal of enjoyment out of baseball and, you know, watching games, the commentary, the kind of podcast universe that exists around it, the publications and the analysis and the TV shows and all, all this stuff. It's a whole, uh, you can really do a deep dive and it can be, you know, you can get like very um, narrative or very nerdy, you know, in terms of statistics and stuff like that, you can, there's a lot of ways to engage with it. And I think that, that uh, there are a lot of kind of interfaces that, that the game of baseball exposes. And that's one of the, the things that accounts for its, um, for its success. And he said, well, you know, I don't know if you're aware of the cheating that's going on in major league baseball right now, but uh, that might be an interesting conversation and i said go on and so uh we talked about this for for a little while no peter are you aware of the scandal that's unfolded over the last several months involving the astros of houston no yeah i'm definitely aware of it i i don't i haven't been able to go into detail on it um well so let me let me orient you yeah let me let me orient you a little bit just at 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 a high level turns out the houston astros are a bunch of dirty cheaters 
Um, Fair enough. And, Are you a fan of a team other than the Houston Astros? Or uh, no, this is, I'm assuming this is substantiated. I mean, I've heard a fair amount about what has been substantiated by. But why don't you go into it for a little bit? One of my favorite Onion articles ever was entitled was an editorial entitled "The Sports Franchise from My Area Will Defeat the Sports Franchise from Your Area in the Upcoming Match," um, and it was a uh, it was a just a you know I, we used to do this in college where we would write the kind of generic version of something. And it's like, whereas many of the cheerleaders from our area have desirable secondary sex characteristics, the cheerleaders from your area suffer in this regard when compared with ours. You know, I, I, I like that. No, this is not personal animus. Uh, in November last year, there was an article uh, in a uh, website called The Athletic, a publication called The Athletic, um, that laid out this whole uh, case against the Astros saying that they had spied on other teams to steal their like the, I, I don't know what they're called the the like the hand signals signals the signs yeah, yeah the, the, that base, the, the, the signs from the base coaches right yeah. or that the that the um, catcher gives to the pitcher uh, okay. Oh, okay. to see what pitch is coming right right and that they had used like cameras and telephoto lenses they had sort of sent people around to like to figure out what the signs of other teams are and once they had this sort of library of information they used this such that uh when a batter went up to bat and you know the uh telephoto camera person you know way in the outfield like uh posted way in the outfield saw the sign from the catcher they signaled somehow back to the dugout and the dugout would signal the batter what pitch was coming and the way that they would do this is to bang on a trash can loudly so they (laughs) right they they developed a kind of airsats morse code to uh like bang 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 that's a slider you know bang 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 that's a fastball, you know, bang, ba-bang, ba-bang, that's a curveball, right? And that these are, I, I, you got to be a little impressed, Pete, that I know the name of three pitches in baseball. <laughs> I am. I, you know, you've been studying for this podcast, I can tell. <laughs> so that this, this uh, and that there are other... Um, and maybe they like whistled, maybe there were noises. Uh, and then Adam Kay told me that there are, um, further allegations that, uh, or sort of things like people have kind of gone a little Reddit on this and like started analyzing video and stuff. And like maybe there were electronic devices, uh, that, you know, attached to the bodies of players that were like buzzing and giving, uh, giving signals or something attached to the bat. Like, you know the rabbit hole goes very deep as you get into the the conspiracy theory um around it's kind this. of a disservice to call it a conspiracy no it's theory, not well right? i mean yeah the the part that i think the part that is absolutely substantiated is the banging on the yeah. trash can now uh the reason it's absolutely substantiated is that the mlb investigated it uh investigated it and they announced in january that they did find that they used cameras and video monitors to steal signs uh from the catchers and then um you know, that the, uh, you know, that people were involved, that the, the coach and the, the, um, you know, the players, big players, you know, the famous players were involved in, in doing this. Um, and the, 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 it was referred to in the, uh, in the report as the banging scheme. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> so <laughs> there was a uh, there was a banging scheme, and they yeah. you know they were punished. I you know, that they was were... for rent on Redbox. I guess that was something that I saw on the way home from the packed train that I was riding on. <laughs> I could have rented the John Travolta movie about the crazy guy with the bowl cut, or I could have rented uh, Jason Mewes and the banging scheme. Yep. Oh, <laughs> he's, he's had so many struggles in his life. Ah, he's, yeah, I mean, he's going to be in the new He-Man cartoon, which is pretty freaking boss. But anyway, we'll, uh, we'll go on with that. So like I, the part, the part that's a conspiracy theory is I think that like Reddit or, you know, the sports, whatever the sports Reddit is, you know, Reddit's, slash MLB or R slash MLB or something like that, um, you know, is, uh, is, has gone like just into full investigation mode on the Astros and everything that they do is sub- suspect. And, and I'm sure that there are other teams doing it. Um, and the, the, uh, you know, they won the pennant in their, in their one, in their, uh, in a recent season, the 2019 season. And so like, um, you know, is this, should this be vacated and stuff like that? Nothing like that happened. They got fined some money and I think they lost some traffics and, uh, you know, it seems like a slap on the wrist to me for what, what seems like a, seems like a pretty big deal. Anyway, Pete, I realize I've been, I've been talking for a while, but this is, this is the background for the, uh, this is the background for the, the sign stealing, um, scandal controversy, uh, cheating done by the Houston Astros. And, and Adam K thought that this was a, uh, uh, thought that this was an interesting thing. And, and he, uh, proposed a jumping off point, which was that if sports is, entertainment at its core you know to a certain extent what does it matter you know um and and there's there's more color around that but i feel like i should step back now and let and let you uh let you react so what 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 do you think what are your uh, thoughts faced with just the fact pattern of this sign stealing uh cheating scheme the banging scheme sure so with the banging scheme in mind well, there's sports and there's sports entertainment. So before we interrogate whether there's a division, well, let's start in the places where we know what's going on, right? So, for example, Matt, there are certain professions wherein if you and I had made an agreement that we would engage in a sporting event with like very clear rules where you and I would get into a ring and that we would adjudicate our dispute with a sort of clear reward of a championship belt if one of us were to win. And then whilst the ref's back was turned, I were to produce a folding chair and hit you with it. Yes. There are certain human pursuits where that is not only uh, allowed, but expected. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what I mean, of course, I mean, of course, I'm talking about professional wrrestling, right? And, and what, the notion... Pete, yeah. the, the state of officiating in professional wrestling is just is is just who who is that inattentive what ref (laughs) here's the thing though matt i think i think that is a case where it actually was worse in our childhoods and the refs in professional wrestling nowadays are quite a bit stricter probably because of safety concerns than the refs were back in the day but no but there's that whole performance in professional wrestling right where where you can do illegal things in the match, but there's a whole performance of making it so that the ref isn't looking, right? And like doing something either accidentally running into the ref so it knocks the ref down, or having someone else distract the ref by doing something against the rules, and then you hit the person with the chair, and uh, and that's of course against the rules, but favors you with a certain advantage because it depletes their arbitrary stamina uh, going into this whole thing. And I guess what I'm pointing out here is uh, even within the constraint of 
entertainments where the outcome is predetermined and where these sorts where really gross violations of the immediate rules are uh, expected by the fans there still is at least the veneer of of uh the notion that there is a rule set that needs to be abided by and that doing these things is a violation of those rules right so i think it's i think it's um important to make a distinction at least somewhat between things that are or are not the violation in violation of the rules versus things that are kind of morally wrong and, and i think that uh that there is a sort of distinction further distinction that you can make between violations or infractions that happen in sports or games where it's it's something where there's a punishment within the scope of the sport right like in the context of the game you suffer a penalty and it's not like it's a failure of character right uh, so so for example i mean basketball is a great example and I'm, I'm probably at least historically a bit more of a sports fan than you met i think but you probably at least know this much right like that if somebody is shooting a basketball and you hit their arm it's called a foul right sure like, you know that much. And and if you get fouled when you're shooting a basket, if the basket goes in, you get a foul shot. If the basket doesn't go in, you get two foul shots. And if you were shooting a three-pointer, maybe you get three foul shots. And there's various sorts of rules. And if you foul more than, you know, six times uh, in a game, you get kicked out. Right. So um, that I mean, that I just want to say that this creates a kind of economy, you know, yes. and that like what 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 I've observed is that kind of the management of fouls like draw. I'm not a sports fan at all, but like the yeah. management of fouls, drawing fouls, you know, when when you can and can't foul and who, who you know, who does it, you know, that 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 this actually because you've created an, an economy, the sort of economic ma- management, the kind of husbandry of your infractions. And I love the word infractions versus like uh, cheating or, or rule breaking or, or misbehavior like the the husband of your infractions is an important part of playing the game at a high level. Right, exactly. And so uh, the notion is not that you can never make incidental contact with another player. Uh, the notion is not even that you can never make on purpose contact with another player. The disruption, there's a punishment for doing it. And if you were to do it enough, then the punishment aggregates enough that it disincentivizes you from doing it. And then if you do it too much, then you don't get to play, which is the real negative punishment, right? That's the real we're going to take away the thing that you like. And that's hopefully going to change behavior down the line. Or at the very least, it's going to represent a meaningful enough consequence to the team that you just don't go out there and do it so much that the entire sport is undermined by your misbehavior, right? And in football, you know, American football, there's tons of penalties because the rules are very complicated and uh, and I just the number of different people who at any given time might be committing an infraction that might be considered to be highly subjective or the you know, the frequency with which infractions of the rules are happening is so high that you really only call some of them. So so I would suggest that there is a a a flexibility within the expectation of legality in sport, infraction in sport, right? Where within that range, there's always a dimension of, okay, you can do it, but you're not always going to get caught, right? And you can do it and you can get caught, but it's not necessarily going to end the game. The the uh, the uh, refrain, the mantra of let the kids play often 
comes forward, right? Let the kids play. Stop interrupting the game ref to continue to call penalties because, yes, there are penalties on lots of plays. The the You've talked about this to me, I think, in the past in terms of understanding concepts of sin and punishment. Mm. And I think you refer to it as like a Teutonic versus Latinate paradigm. Yep. Right? Where this is, there's the idea that, uh, I mean, you want to unpack that a little bit and how that may be relevant. Uh, oh, sure. Sure. I can. This was actually, this was, uh, uh, Actually, we've we've made uh, Bob a character on this show. This this was uh, told me uh, told to me by Bob Boulogne, uh the the late Bob Boulogne, who we um, uh, talked about uh, on the show when he was very sick with cancer. He has since passed. Um, you know, may peace be upon him. And Father Bob, um, you know, in sort of talking about theology, this, this in the conversations that we've had about about Catholic priests, um, he said, "You guys, you know." People People, people talking about the Catholic idea of sin as it is, you know, sort of operationalized and and lived, it, it need to understand Italy better, right? And he said, you you go you go to Rome to visit the Vatican, and you go to the bus stop to get on the bus to the Vatican. There's going to be a sign that says no smoking. Right on on the bus stop because it's a public facility. You can't smoke there. You know, even even in Europe, there are rules. Uh, and the um, you know, in, in the sign that says uh, no smoking in the bus stop with the sign that says no smoking, what you're going to observe is that everybody has a cigarette because <laughs> it's Europe and they're all smoking. And if you were to ask them, what what why are you all smoking? Um, you know, th- there's a sign there that says no smoking. And it's like, hey, what's the matter, you? You know, the the sign is there. <laughs> I don't think they would actually say that. <laughs> Literally, that's it. That's yeah, a, that's my that's literal exact, exact quote. Direct quote. <laughs> say, uh, and and yes. yeah, exactly. By the way, a sociologically researched, correct Italian accent. Um, yes. No, the, you've the, learned everything you know about the world from Bob Hope movies, apparently. <laughs> yes, back in my day, picture. <laughs> of Italians were more accurate. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 yeah, like uh, the Hardy Boys, uh, swarthy yeah. friend, Tony yeah. Pr- Preeti. Um, anyway, so uh, what, uh, and the, the thing that Bob said to me was, uh, you know, the, the, the Italians will tell you, eh, the sign has to be there. The sign is there for the inspector. But it's not, it's not actually expected that you will live up 100% to this. The, the rules, and, and here, like, this was in the context, of course, of a discussion of, of, uh, of Catholic sexual morality, right? The rules are there uh, to describe the ideal example. You know, um, the rules are there to sort of describe the, the, like the best way that, that it could be done, the sort of the, the paradigmatic version of this. But, um, you know, life is hard and people are complicated and you, you won't always live up to the ideal example in the course of, uh, in the course of living your life. And that, like, when you do, there needs to be a humane mechanism for, admitting that for you know dealing with that somehow and for you know not um 
uh, not kind of freaking out <laughs> about it, but for dealing with it in a way that is, that is, you know, constructive and or healing and or, you know, uh, gives you growth or gives you like, uh, you know, some, some life enhancing, uh, experience rather than just sort of making you bad and punishing you for, you know, being a, a bad sinful boy. And, you know, if you, if you sort of contrast whatever you think about that, right? Like uh, just bracket for a second what, what you, actually think about that uh in practice and like let's let's leave Emmanuel Kant out of this please um like uh, the, you can see a difference there in the way it's articulated between you know this um idea of morality and uh rule following and you know sin or or cheating or rule breaking that's being described in what we might call a more fundamentalist uh oriented uh, approach to it sorry there's probably more than more uh, no, no, it's, than it's you important. wanted but it's the texture is important i don't want to over i don't want to over connect what you're saying to this issue because i don't think it applies to all of it but i think it applies to the part of it you're asking about and this segment of it, which is that even when sports are not even when the outcome of a sporting event has been predetermined for your entertainment, whether it's in a movie, whether it's in a pro wrestling match, they, there still is the performance of the relationship between the player and the rules. And this is built into the way that sports work. A lot of the time, most sports have some penalties that are associated with doing things that are wrong in the context of the game. And so and these penalties have are concrete. They are there are real costs that and part of how the game is designed is to make it possible for there to be concrete costs in the context of the game for breaking the rules such that it doesn't destroy the playing of the game for you to break the rules of the game. But this sort of happens within the scope of how the game is going. Right. And and I'm talking about fouls in basketball, penalties in football, cards in soccer. Right. Um, or, you know, football, as it were, uh, you know, different sorts of sports have different sorts of traditions for how they perform this relationship between, uh, you know, it is a sort of a performance of a, of a relationship of right and wrong, because you have to, I think, uh, believe on some level that it is wrong to do the things that are against the rules, but that you do them sometimes when they're necessary or strategically important. And that's a sort of way of performing and understanding our own impulses sometimes to do things that might not be strictly speaking right right like charles barkley is a very sympathetic person the saturday night live sketch where he plays basketball against barney and smashes him with his elbow right uh you know charles barkley's also been a huge jerk to certain people in his life and in his professional career in ways that were very public and there's something about the sort of you know quote-unquote bad boy athlete uh, who is in that sort of sense, you know, oh, you're trash talking, you're being a little bit too violent, right? You're, you know, I don't want to be a role model in what I do. There's certain sorts of infractions that sports absorbs very well and that sports is very good at dealing with and performing to people. I would say that the the big thing, uh, the big part about all of it is is consistency, right? Is that, yes, you're not always going to be caught, but in general, right, especially when you are caught, the consequences are going to be consistent and everybody is going to be watching. And so if you're thinking again, 
I'm not the real behaviorist in my household. If you want to talk about the study of behavior, talk to my wife. She's much smarter about it than I am. But if you want to talk about the value of reward versus punishment, if you want to really incentivize a behavior, you give them a reward, right? And punishments are not necessarily as good at doing it. But if you're going to punish somebody for doing it, it has to be consistent and it has to be immediate, right? It has to be, it has to say, no, 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 no. You don't get to curse at the umpire. You're out of here, right? And even in that consequence, there's 162 baseball games in a season. Getting ejected from one of them is not a mind-breaking penalty, right? The issue where sports really has trouble, I think, is when you have these infractions that the sport cannot accommodate with a punishment that can be iterated over many time periods, right? Or a sport that uh, an infraction that can't be tolerated if it's ignored uh, periodically and then sort of periodically put in. I'm thinking then these run the gamut, right? I'm thinking of everything from the situations you've seen in the NFL. Right. Where I mean, there's a lot of every, every sporting league has dealt with them, but they've been very theatrical in the NFL where the players have engaged in like very flagrant mistreatment of people, especially women outside the context of the game. Right. It's like, oh, this, you know, here's the, the video of the player, you know, smashing the woman's head in, in the elevator. That's not the kind of thing where it's like it's not a foul if the ref doesn't pull the whistle. Right. Like you can't deal with it that way. But the sport already has a mechanism built into it, an expectation that people are punished for doing bad things. And so there's this relationship that gets really, I think, a little bit tense. I mean, that's a very, very severe example. A less severe example would be Pete Rose. Right. Gambling yeah. addict, right? Pete Rose, gambling addict, bets on his team in baseball. This is beyond the pale against the rules. He is banned for life, you know, right? The career hits leader, banned for life, can never be in the Hall of Fame, which I'll tell you, when we were little, seemed like a much bigger punishment than it seems now. Because <laughs> like, uh, it turns out that you can find out everybody in Cooperstown from your phone, and you never have to go to Cooperstown to get the experience, right? Like, But for Pete Rose, it still matters, right? For Pete Rose, he wishes he were still in the Hall of Fame. And I know it matters to a lot of people, but the point being that, like, Pete Rose's infraction, while beyond the pale, right, and something that somebody should never do, especially if they're a manager of a major league baseball team, you would think is not on the same order, right, as something like a player murdering someone. Right. Which is also something that has happened. And it's also like, well, are we going we think that this guy was involved in somebody's murder, but we're not really sure. And he was never really convicted of anything. And we really don't know how to deal with it. And and I think because people see in sports this performance of rule following and it is really embedded in the culture, there's a real there's an additional difficulty in dealing with uh, situations for which they're each even with the sample size is only one that there needs to be a very severe consequence right because it does there's no, it doesn't fit into the paradigm of the things in the sport where there can be okay well you did the people did it five times two of the times they got caught we all know the penalty of what it is you really shouldn't do it because it's going to make your chances of winning the game worse etc cetera, etc cetera. and then and the place where it gets really dodgy and we're seeing it come out really, really sketchily recently, I think, between these two extremes are these ways of of cheating in the game by exploiting the sort of physical reality of the game as taking place in a stadium. Right. And the sort of creative ways that people come up with to cheat in the game 
using the mechanisms that are around them, including various sorts of advanced technologies, right? The idea that the game is sort of designed so that you're not really supposed to be able to see what the sign the catcher gives between his legs is and relay it to the batter fast enough for them to make a reaction to it. And so the fact that that's even possible kind of breaks the rules of baseball. And and so I'm also thinking about deflate gate, right? Where it's like, well, you know, there's this rule that the, that the teams have to inflate their footballs, but they're kind of responsible for it themselves. And there's sort of this inspection, but nobody really cares. And, and the temperature is always different and the air pressure is always different. And the people from different cities are going to think it happened in different ways. It's just like, um, so I would say that uh, the idea that the rules that exist in sports are sacrosanct only because they out, they make the outcomes of the games fair is false. That the rules in sport are also sort of a dimension of performance, and there's something that is part of what makes the sport kind of enjoyable, right? And it's part of the the kind of the entertainment that the sport provides that it has rules, and that you get to watch people get caught for breaking the rules or sometimes not get caught for breaking the rules and the consequences of that as intersectionally related to the outcomes of the game. Uh, and that all kind of exists, right? But then at the same time, you have the really, really terrible ways of doing things that break the rules of our own society, right? The rules uh, that are sort of the laws, right? And uh, and also the sort of meta rules that allow the sport to function and be adjudicated in a fair manner um, in a more or less extreme way. And when you get down to these methods that you can get to where people are exploiting I mean, I would always venture to say exploiting loopholes in how the game is organized and constructed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a term for it in the NFL, something – I think it's called like uh, patently unfair acts or something like that. Uh, uh, I think – Well, there's – I mean there's an interesting – yeah, there's an interesting kind of set of assumptions about privacy here, right? Like, you know, you're trying – Yep, go for it. Publicly unfair act? Oh, palpably. Like a hit, a palpable hit. A hit. A palpably unfair act is a rule that anticipates the idea that you could come up with something unfair that the rules haven't thought of. It's sort of an anti-Air Bud act. Uh, But uh, anyway, sorry. uh, Anti-Air Bud rule. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go on. (laughs) Um, That, uh, you know, uh, the the uh, this the the movie quote that this puts me in mind of is from the Big Lebowski when John Goodman says uh, in in the midst of a I, not tournament play but I think like uh, of um, at the bowling alley he says Smokey this is not Nam there are rules uh, <laughs> and that's. You know, and that's actually, I mean, that's part of the, that's part of the attraction. I really am taken, Pete, with your idea of like the rules being part of the performance, part of the kind of the entertainment value of sports, because there's a kind of fantasy, there's a kind of wish fulfillment, uh, that goes, that goes on with that, because, you know, life is not sports, life is numb. You know, the, the, there, there aren't really, um, rules. There but here's, aren't, you know, I, I mean, mean, that's true. I, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. I'll wait for you for you to finish your talk, your the, thought. The, uh, that and that, like doing that, there, there, there's also kind of an interesting set of things to unpack about, like what what makes it what makes it palpably unfair, like right, like so you're you're trying to signal surreptitiously to the pitcher, you know, um, so you hide your you hide your uh, uh, your signs by kind of making them between your legs as the catcher as you as you squat at the plate. That's not like the batter could. Turn around and look at you, 
you know, <laughs> right? That's, that's not, it, it would, I suppose it would be considered unsporting maybe, but like the, the, which is a whole other word that we probably don't have time to delve into, but like, yeah, okay. Like it, it would be possible, you know, uh, for the batter actually to just look. And if the, if they had, you know, memorized the, the playbook of, uh, of what the signs are, you know, what the catcher's signs to the pitcher are, then you could know what, what, pitch is coming okay so there but you sort of do it surreptitiously so that there's an expectation of privacy but but the the reason your your the surreptitious nature of your communication means ipso facto that it's not actually private right because there's no need to be surreptitious in a situation where privacy is is protected you know if you had a a conversation at the mound you know that's that everyone holds their glove over their mouth so you can't read your lips and like that communication is is you know protected by distance or whatever you know the uh unless someone has a directional microphone which happens at the nfl sometimes too i think well yeah right like people can listen to your conversation yeah, for sure. But the the like right, and so you've you've sort of have had Bill Belichick on this podcast to talk about all this because he would have been really good at talking about. It. Anyway, yeah, sorry, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, he's, he, you're up in Boston. Like, why why couldn't you get him? Like, you know, he's. Uh, um, I couldn't tell. I when I asked him, he didn't smile, so I didn't know if that was a yes or a no, and I was afraid to ask. <laughs> um, and you were like, "Do your job," and anyway, no, the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the whole uh uh the whole thing the whole thing that I'm th- that I'm making is like by having a system of surreptitious signaling from one place to another are you not are are you not Pete uh as I question you Socratically uh starting a a sort of cat and mouse game you know and that like by doing that certain kinds of technology uh, by doing that it it's an arbitrary line uh where the cat and mouse game what are the legitimate permutations of that cat and mouse game like what are the legitimate moves in this game in this kind of simultaneously move game and uh what are the kind of the technological pieces that sort of take it off the field that sort of um that sort of take it that take it uh out of the realm of of what we're willing to accept in in the game what were you about to say before when i oh well i was was going to say not even nom was nom Nom is only nom if you don't consider that it's a country that people live in, right? Like, it, like the reason that, and that's sort of the joke, right? Is like the joke is that nom is this place where there are no rules or expectations because you haven't met the people who live there, you don't speak the language, and you don't care, right? You see it as this moment of, of sort of savage liberation in this fantasy, and of course these characters are not speaking sincerely with the moral voices of their creators, but like Vietnam had rules, you know, but you. You just you didn't speak Vietnamese, so you didn't know what the rules were. You brought your own rules, right? You brought your own rules, and maybe you found that there wasn't adequate kind of social reinforcement for the rules that you expected to be followed, and so then you thought there were no rules. And it's just it's it's a really interesting series of collisions. That's taking it's also place. it's also uh, nom is not nom, and also more things are nom than just nom, right? Like right, the, right. the the issue of like having media, having sort of mass media embedded in the war in in. Uh, uh, in a way that was genuinely new at the time, kind of made those things that had always been true of war and some of the kind of the inhumanity of war visible to people. And so it became this, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it became this, this yeah. thing, but like the, the, uh, that is to say, but, but, you know, the, the larger point I was making is that like the, the, you know, the, I think 
just kind of following on in what you're saying about the the kind of the function of rules in in sports like i do think there is there is kind of a wish fulfillment um there's a kind of wish fulfillment kind of thing and there's there is sort of a wind chill factor there's a david memetti and wind chill factor uh by which i mean he he wrote a book um he became an essayist he has become an essayist in later life which is really a regrettable turn because very very good playwright uh um you know, super misogynistic, but you know, then so is America and, and he is a chronicler of America. Really wonderful playwright. Terrible essayist. I have no idea what gave that guy the idea that he could sit at the big boys table intellectually, big kids table, I should say, to be non, to be non-sexist about it in misogynistic David Mamet universe and misogynistic America. But anyway, he wrote an, an essay and one of the good ones is called The Windchill Factor, where he talks about in, in just in the course of natural storytelling, we use uh ways to there there are ways to get off the hook like oh pete it was so cold yesterday and you're like well man it was only uh you know it was only like uh 50 degrees yesterday it gets a lot colder here in boston yeah but pete the wind chill factor you know um it gives you it gives you a way it gives you a kind of get out of jail free card and sort of telling telling your story and like giving it the kind of the import the stakes uh that that you want it gives you a kind of fudge factor. And I feel like the rules in the narrativizing of sports gi- gives you that. Like either, you know, the calls didn't go our way. We outplayed them, but the calls didn't go our way, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, that, that the officiating was bad, that the adjudication of like, uh, of adherence to the rules was bad, um, you know, in the course of like maintaining the, the gameplay and that, that like, it gives you, it gives you a fudge factor in how you, uh, narrativize, um, you know, talking about, you know, why your team won or lost or, or, or something like that, even though the calls went against us, right. Even the refs hated us, right. Even though we were, we were able to, uh, eke out a victory in uh uh in the game and i'm i'm really i'm sort of taken uh i'm taken with that i'm taken with that idea you know but here's a here's an interesting counterfactual mm-hmm. what if right what if this was fan generated right what if the whole uh what if it were fan generated? You mean? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. What if it were? Sorry. Yeah. A subjunctive mood expresses a condition contrary to fact. What if, rather <laughs> than an elaborate scheme to uh, to steal the sign, to steal the ca- the uh, catcher's signs to the pitcher, what if uh, it were a crowdsourced scheme, um, not started by the Astros, but just kind of you know spontaneously arising, fortunately, among their fans, right? Mm-hmm. And that you had fans in the outfit in the outfield. With with telephoto lenses and someone like tweeted something uh right before right before the pitch and suppose you know that you could work out the latency in this so that you know everyone got it and then yeah. as one when the tweet was published the whole stadium shouted curveball <laughs> slider you know like suppose suppose that w- would that be Cheating in the same way, would we attach the same kind of moral valence to it that that we attach uh, to the to the sign stealing thing, or or would we like would that be sort of ingenious and um, kind kind of amazing? 
It's interesting. I think it's an interesting proposition. It does relate to how serious the stakes are. And I think one thing that it really speaks to, which I think also follows on to your notion of the cat and mouse game, because one thing that we're not really covering here as much is, you know, obeying the law in real life and kind of following the rules that are set for you by regulators, which I actually believe in quite a bit as being very important, not just for kind of ethics and law and order, but very beneficial to the people who are being regulated to have a process for following the laws of your regulators, um, is that is that you would want the judgment to be fast, I think, right? Is that you don't want a, a, a stadium to do that. Like, I'm, I'm imagining a setup where everybody holds their phone up, right? And there's an algorithm that determines, based on who the batter and pitcher are, whether a given pitch is something that the batter should swing at or not, and, like, throws up a red or a blue, right? To say, like, swing, don't swing, right prior to the pitch, right? If that happened, what you would hope to see is some sort of punishment handed down, like, really fast, and, and and it might even be kind of like a joke, right? It's like, oh, because there's all sorts of old stories in baseball. I think there's the story of, what is it, like Casey Stengel was bored in the outfield and he crawled into a hole in the ground that was covered with like a box top and like the ball came towards him and he jumped out and grabbed it. Right? There's all sorts of weird old stories from baseball about people finding ways to break the rules. And, uh, and a lot of the time they're just portrayed as kind of funny. And, and the way the stories almost always end is the umpire has to figure out what the decision is and level the decision. So like, say something like that were to happen and, and the game were to be be carried out and it's done. And then they confer and they say, okay, okay, okay. The game wasn't fair. We need to replay the last three innings of the game. And you did it right away. Right. And yeah, it would really inconvenience everybody's schedules and everybody could have a good laugh about it. Right. And then you would make a new rule that would basically say that like, you know, and although actually you wouldn't want to do that because now you have to think through it. That means if you do that every time, fans would love to troll you with that. If they were losing, they could do it. And then you could replay the last three innings of the game. Like you'd have to come up with some sort of punishment that punished the fans or punished the team enough that like everybody acknowledged that justice had been served and it kind of convinced everybody to stop doing it. But if you let it go for an entire season, you never did anything about it. Then you're in a lot of trouble. And I would say if you let it go for an entire season, say it's bad, don't punish it and then wait an entire year and then hand down a punishment. At this point, it's the Wild West and you've just removed the rules entirely. And again, here I am. Nam isn't just Nam. Wild West isn't just the Wild West. But I think you know what I mean. You've 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 lapsed in your and I know what you mean. And I was being pedantic, too. You've lapsed to such a degree in your authority as the enforcer of the rules that you've become ignored and you've lost your legitimacy. <laughs> like uh, and so, um, you know, one of the big problems, I think one of the big I think one of the really, really big social, interpersonal, spiritual problems that we have or dealing with as a human race right now is how quickly we become aware of things that are happening and how slowly we become aware of the consequences. Um, and, And even I would even venture that to say in there is if there are situations where it's a good idea or it's been agreed upon that somebody's gonna like have consequences based on kind of the people to what they do, um when those con- and and there's there's this kind of it's tricky because there's like a there's a conflict of different factors right there's this notion of you know reward works better than punishment at 
reinforcing behavior, right? Which is, I think, true, which is that it's better to reward people for doing good things than punishing them for doing bad things. If you punish them in a way that feels arbitrary, it will create resentment and they won't actually follow you. Uh, and, and if you just sort of punish, you know, sort of occasionally, then it won't mean anything. And the only kind of punishment that really means anything is a punishment that sets a clear boundary and is really consistent. And to do that, it has to be fast. But in order for a punishment to be fast, there are compromises that often get made in the justice, you know, how just the punishment is. Because if you're creating a permanent consequence for somebody, you really want to be sure you're doing the right thing. And so you have situations where somebody does something bad in front of everybody. And I mean, I'm not going to like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge anything in particular. Somebody does something really bad in front of everybody. Everybody knows it's bad. And then there's a long, drawn out process where people kind of wait and see whether there's going to be some sort of punishment. At this point, the whole purpose of the punishment has gone out the window, right? It's like it's it's and it's a real problem because it really calls into question the very nature of the rules. And and it's not like it's an easy solution. Oh, well, you just do a snap judgment and do it really fast. Just ban the team from playing baseball for the rest of the season. If the fans do that once, that's crazy. Of course, you wouldn't do that. Right. Because the whole point of the of the team being there is because the fans support it. They want it to be there and they want to watch the games. Right. And it's like, you know, the fans do something like that because it's fun. And then you usually punish them with, you know, and you take the game away. That, that just you're not protecting anything. You're destroying the thing that you're seeking to protect. Right. So I know I'm kind of rambling here, but but I just see this conflux here of different notions of what reward and punishment do. And I think your example of the fans getting involved in it uh, is it would set up a good hypothetical for how to test those things. I would want to see some sort of very swift punishment that relates to the fans. Um, and maybe even if it's just some sort of performative thing, right? Uh, you know, the players have to come out on the field and give a big apology for everybody. Right. And like a bunch of the fans who did it have to go on the field and say they're sorry. Right. Or something like that. Some sort of big social performance that everybody can share to let everybody know right away that the thing you're doing isn't OK. Maybe that would help. I just I don't know. Um, and that, that is interesting in the case of your counterfactual, because because the idea that the sports team, it gets it gets even trickier. Right. If you're you're talking, we're going from the notion of, you know, we're playing hack a shack because we know that Shaq's percentage, Shaq's expected value of making points right while on the floor is high is higher than when he's behind the free throw line. So we want to foul Shaq as much as possible. Right. Mm, wanna, yeah. And that, that's like a whole like that's like a legitimate strategy that's been attempted on several occasions. It doesn't actually work out that way. And part of why sports still function is because strategies like that don't really work. And if the strategy does work, you should probably change the rules of the sport. But. We're going from that extreme to the other extreme of like, well, what about people who do really, really heinous crimes and it's not really tolerable to like allow them to continue to play? <laughs> but even though they didn't necessarily break the rules of the game. Yeah, right? I don't like, know. You, we, yeah. we, we all watch the Super Bowl. You know? <laughs> well, just... I mean, that's the point, right, is that it's, it becomes an intolerable situation. And the and the performative relationship with rules that sports has is poorly suited dealing with it. And now we're at the point where, OK, well, what if you were to talk about society at large and its kind of problematic relationship with rules and punishment and reward and enforcement and this notion that um, – that that kind of I don't know whether it's a lack of modernization or what has happened, 
But the sort of very popular spread of a very labyrinthine bureaucratic approach to problem solving uh, that I think you see in a lot of places has, has really overwhelmed the immediate experience of, of not I wouldn't necessarily call it justice qua justice, but the performance of justice, which is, I think, an important role that the trappings of government enshrine. And if they don't do it, the here's the risk, right? If you don't do it, someone will come along who does it and they will do bad things with the power that you've given them, right? You need to continue to perform justice for people because a lot of them want it. And if you don't do it, someone will come along and do it. And then they will actually really harshly punish people who don't deserve to be punished in order to preserve their power. And that is something that you can prevent if you don't become lackadaisical in your attitude towards doing something that maybe you don't think is optimally effective in what it's going to do, but might be socially necessary. But now we get to the point, right, where teams are cheating because they want to sell World Series merchandise, right? Right. Uh, like they that like the that you get into the point where the teams cheat at the sport. I mean, I guess you could make the distinction. Right. Do you think here's my here's my counter question to you, Matt. When you think of a situation like the Astros cheating with the sign stealing, the Patriots inflating the footballs, whether, you know, again, I live in Boston, so I hear both sides of this story, whether it's effective or not. I mean, even in the case of the Patriots, one of the stories that we talked about on the podcast that I thought was the most interesting was the notion that part of why the 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 commissioner was persecuting this so much is that he wanted access to Tom Brady's cell phone because Tom Brady was big uh, in supporting the union and he wanted leverage on him or he wanted to compromise him in some way, right? Which is not necessarily a crazy suggestion, but the idea that there's personal beef or it has to do with the labor negotiations, right? Um, but when you're thinking about, I mean, Belichick was found, found all sorts of ways to manipulate the rules. One big one that was coming around was what the... Uh, the notion of deliberately taking delay of game penalties in order to force uh, the opponent to make a kick from an undesirable location on the field, right, which I think the Jets did back to him at some point. When you hear of a team that does that, do you think of A, OK, these are people who are really trying to win and they're going to extreme lengths to win and the links are going beyond what the rules are doing to the point where the fans are angry and it violates both the letter and spirit of the rules and it kind of feels like a really bad moral example and a bad taste in your mouth and it makes the it's threatening the the likely the uh, integrity of the games but they're doing it because they want to win right versus they're doing it in pursuit of the externalities that come from victory and that and that's the I think the a really interesting distinction, right? Which is, is the organization ignoring the constraints that are being put on the game and its outcomes in order to gain not necessarily victory in the game itself, which you would expect them to be interested in based on the part they play in all this, but the externalities that come from victory in the game, right? In which case, I feel like it, it breaks, it feels like it breaks a kind of moral agreement as to why we're doing this sort of thing. And this idea of the different cities and the different fan bases all kind of buying into these leagues. But if you are willing to cheat at the game in order to make the money that you would make from selling World Series merchandise, I feel like that feels a lot more nefarious than the idea that you're just a pathological, you know, winner at all costs who is going to look for edges. You're going to you're an you're an angle shooter, 
right? Um, and I guess in gambling, it becomes much more obvious because winning and money are not distinct, right? We talked about this with the angle shooting in poker and the cheating in poker scandal a while ago that we also talked about. Um, I'm just curious. I guess that's a question, but it doesn't really amount to much of a question. Um, but again, I would love I would love to know. I don't know whether the Astro situation is more along the lines of it is good for our business and our franchise for our team to win. We are going to fraudulate the outcome of games in order to do so versus, you know, we want to win baseball games. It's our job to win baseball games and we're not doing anything else with our time. So we're going to rig something in the stadium. So we win and damn the consequences. So it goes to, I mean, what you're saying is that to a certain, to a certain extent, this goes to intent, right? Like I'm, I'm curious about the intent and how it makes you feel about the sport. Because if it's, if the intent is to win the game, and and the externalities are less of a concern. Right? Is it all fair? I, yeah. Is all is all fair in love and baseball? Right? Well, you that- punish them. You can say no, you didn't win. Right. And then you didn't win. You're not going to win. You got caught. Yeah, we're going to really funny. Don't you, do it again. Right. Yeah, you're going to what you you. Uh, yeah, you're we're going to vacate. You're, right. Exactly. We're going to vacate the 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 that time when you won the pennant. Right. Like, right, and right, right. you know, um, Which yeah, is it's what they do in college when they're mucking around with the college recruiting stuff. Right. It's like, well, you didn't really win the title. Right. <laughs> and, and then it's although that's also not taking into account the idea that money is involved. But sorry, I interrupted. Well, the the uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I don't really separate the like the desire to sell. Mer- it's funny because I don't I don't have a lot of sentimental con- connections to like America's pastime or something. You know, I, I could give a poop, you know, and that so so to me. I, I guess I have a more jaundiced view of it. Like, why? Why else are you trying to win rather, you know, rather than to sort of like uh, sell sell merchandise to sell more tickets to your sports Matt, franchise? I have a great, to... I have a great movie that you could watch. It's called <laughs> Thousands of Movies. <laughs> that all directly answer that question. <laughs> it's called We Are Marshall. Have you watched We Are Marshall, Matt? Have you watched Rudy? Have you ever watched a little movie called Necessary Rough? Just, you know, well, yeah, necessary roughness is at least about professional sports, right? Like, no, it's not. It's about college sports. Oh, is it? It's about college. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. College sport. The, the amount of money that goes into to college sports, like like televised sports. I guess there are parts of the country where high school football is is televised. So we are Marshall. You're thinking of Friday, are you thinking of Friday night? Friday night, night lights and and yeah. like, you know. why do you want to win? Uh, is I think a, I think it's a legitimate question. Well, do you ever? I mean, Matt, do you are you you feel like you're missing anything? thing in your life because you don't uh, do you experience victory in your life uh no not really i mean god that's that's sort of that's sort of interesting it's really validating is it i i mean i guess i you know i don't like i sort of don't like competition generally it's one of the reasons why i left i mean in in all honesty it's one of the reasons why i left acting right like because it's so uh I just don't like the I don't like the kind of the competitive parts of it, like the parts of of act, the parts of being a professional actor and working in in um, theater and on camera that I liked were were sort of the teamwork parts, right? Like where people like do do their roles. Like film sets are so uh, effective at getting stuff done that you know it's studied in in management training about how you know a group of people who have never worked together before uh, through like 
like, you know, clear definition of roles through whatever can, can without ever having known each other, like, uh, come together at 5 a.m. in the morning and by like 10 be rolling film on, on, you know, on whatever, on whatever, whatever level of, uh, of movie, television, student film, anything like it's that, you know, it, it, the system works that well, uh, that much of the time that you can sort of form a team and really, really accomplish something. And anyway, sorry, I'm, 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 uh, getting off topic. What, what I mean was like, those were the parts of the business that I, that I really liked and appreciated. Like I liked knowing what I, I liked knowing what I contributed and like, I liked, um, you know, but the sort of the, the victory of like, you know, ah, supremacy, ha, ah, how, how much better we, how much better we are than the, uh, uh, how much better we are than the New York Yankees, you know, like, uh, for you, boss. I, I, I sat, um, that's I s- not what it feels like. Oh no. That's a- <laughs> like, ha ha, how much better are we? <laughs> like, it's not, I don't, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm a stranger in a strange land. I'm a born and bred New York sports fan living in Boston, but I will tell you that experiencing the victory of your team in a sporting event is not a feeling of like, ha ha, how much better I am than you. <laughs> right. That's, that's not what it feels like. It's a, it's an exultant feeling, right? It's like, it's like a, it's an exultant feeling of 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 kind of an opening up of the secrets of the universe to you right and this like this idea that that there's a sort of consonance that this thing that you've cared about and rooted for and been invested in has sort of come to a successful fruition through a combination of what like luck and kismet and hard work and talent and dedication and like all these things have come together to produce this big outcome and and it's sort of like you you live with the expectation of being disappointed even as a yankee fan right you you know you still live with the expectation that you're going to have your heart broken and and that's kind of the way that sports when they work fairly work right like your team loses half the games you know at, at on average and wins the championship you know one over n times where n is the number of teams in the league is like the sort of fair outcome and that's not like haha i'm better than you it's that you know i have a season for me right i have a moment for me and a moment for my people and a moment for us. And that in those times in life when I feel like everything is down and crappy and I feel like nothing can, you know, nothing can get better. Well, you know what? There's always next season. And if you have those moments and you save up those memories, right, they serve as a little warmth. They serve as a little hooded lantern against the cold of an uncaring universe sometimes, right? Being like, yeah, I know it's terrible right now, but maybe next year we'll win the pennant. Right. Maybe next year we'll win. And uh, and the winning is not I don't know. I don't I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who experience it. I shouldn't say it's not how it's experienced at all. I'm sure there are a lot of people. Who I, I, yeah, I, was, I was about to say, yeah, Pete, in, in 2004, uh, when the Red Sox won the World Series for, for you know, for the first time in, in I don't know, 90 something years or, or 80 something years. Right. Like uh, Belinky picked me up in Connecticut and we drove up like overnight. You yeah. know, we drove up to uh we drove up to Boston, parked our car near Fenway, and uh, just went bar hopping in the bars yeah. around. And my my voice went hoarse, joining the cries of "Yankees suck, Yankees yeah, suck." But that's not the same as saying like "Ha ha ha, I'm better than you." Well, it, <laughs> you say you say potato, I say Yankees suck. No, but think know? about what does that mean? What does the word Yankees mean in that chant? <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure. The sort of broader subtext of saying Yankees suck, right? It's not just the team from New York sucks. 
right? I mean, the team from New York is associated with this sort of inevitability, this sort of sense that they are going to win and you're going to lose, mm. right? And and that they spend all the money and they have all the advantages, right? And they and they also there's a sort of character that's being dis- discussed in it that's sort of not your character. Uh, and and there's sort of failure of character on their side because they don't play the game fair. And, and the idea that whatever this thing that you've embodied that stands against what you feel like you stand for has been laid low, right? It doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's like me as a human being feeling superior to you as a human being. It is about kind of reducing human beings to symbols and experiencing human beings as tribes and symbolic tribes, I suppose, which might even be worse from a standpoint of reconciliation. But it's like... I don't know. I would say it's like that, they uh, say, like uh, Coach Taylor said in Friday Night Lights, men are coming to your house to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, being a football player is a little bit different than watching baseball on television. <laughs> I would say being a football player is different from being a baseball player because, I, after all, I'm not an athlete. I'm a baseball player. <laughs> There's a great show called Eastbound and Down that, that, that interrogates a lot of these concepts. <laughs> I, I, you know, I guess it's true. I'm, I, I definitely like. I'm open to the idea, to the, to the suggestion that my, my sense of like sports and the kind of the personal and emotional payoffs involved in sports are kind of like childish and and petulant and unevolved. Because like the last time I was involved in sports, uh, in any, you know, in any way, really personally, I was a prepubescent child you know and and there was a lot of uh there was a lot of two four six eight who do we assassinate um yeah. you know go, going I'm not, on i'm not so saying that doesn't happen i'm not yeah. saying it's all you know wine and roses i guess what i'm saying it's also fine to not care about sports yeah. i'm just saying that if you're trying to guess what it feels like in my experience that's not what it feels like oh uh but then again i've also been on record as saying that i far prefer victory to superiority and maybe that's a niche idea but it's like i tend to think uh maybe that's not the dominant notion but i tend to think that the point of victory in sports is that moment of feeling that you won and that the reason that fan bases for teams other than the best team exist is because you're able to hold on to that time that you won and and what it comes to represent in the shared stories of your group of people and so it's not necessarily about being the best because most of the time you're not Right. And so, like, why are there any Royals fans? <laughs> like, Because they've only won a few times. And it's like, well, but yeah, but the times that they won really meant something to them. And and what is it that they meant? Right. And because certainly, you know, it's like, well, I was better than you before. Now I'm not. But I was then is is uh, is something of a certain limited utility, I suppose, in your kind of current actualization, if you're seeing it as sort of a necessary thing. for. You. But then you could also talk about pine tar as another great example of cheating in baseball. Uh, man, it was a simpler time when pine tar was the villain, right? Where the idea was, I mean, when I talk about pine tar, do you know what I'm talking about? I, I don't. Uh, so there's a rule. So It's just so funny to think about it, right? It's that, it's that people would put this substance on their bats to be able to grip it better. And, and there's the idea that if you put too much of it on the bat, then... Uh, I like I like don't even know what advantage you conferred, right? But it's like, oh, you put or maybe like you you put you weren't supposed to put it on your bat at all to be able to hold on to it. But there was like there was like a tolerable amount of pine tar that you could put on your wooden baseball bat. And if you violated it, you would get ejected. Uh let me see. It's uh, da, 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 da. um 
Yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to read you a little bit of a Wikipedia thing. This is from 1983, right? The Pine Tar Game. And I'm not reading this. Think about whether you think of the Astros cheating as something comparable to the Pine Tar Game or more comparable to the sort of severe sorts of business-oriented manipulations that really make it feel like the social the social agreement among the team the fans of various sports teams is being put in jeopardy by somebody who is not willing to allow the league to adjudicate the winner of the contest but okay the pine tar incident or the pine tar game is a controversial incident during an american league baseball game played between the kansas city royals and the new york yankees on july 24th 1983 in yankee stadium in new york city with his team trailing four to three in the top half of the ninth inning and two out George Brett of the Royals, a name that will live in pine tar forever, uh, also a very good baseball player, hit a two-run home run, giving his team the lead. However, Yankees manager Billy Martin, who had noticed a large amount of pine tar on his bat, requested that the umpires inspect his bat. The umpires ruled that the amount of pine tar on the bat exceeded the amount allowed by rules, nullifying the home run and calling him out. As he was the third out in the ninth inning with the home team in the lead, the game ended with a Yankees win. (laughs) Right. And there are sections of this called strategic maneuvering, legal battle, resumption of play, base touching affidavit. Like the bat is in the Hall of Fame. Um, And I mean, I even I, I you learned I learned as a kid that you couldn't put too much pine tar on your bat. And it is kind of funny Right. Um, the rule one subsection 10 C of the Major League Baseball rulebook who read a bat may not be covered by substance more than 18 inches from the tip of the handle. At the time, such a hit was defined in the rules as an illegally batted ball. And under the terms of the then existing provision of rule 606, any batter who hit an illegally batted ball was immediately called out. The umpires concluded that under this interpretation, Brett's home run was disallowed and he was out. I do not know. What advantage this confers for the batter at all, right? Um, why, right? Why is it? Why does it is? I can understand why there would be a rule against putting too much stickiness on your bat, but I don't know what advantage it confers in this situation, right? Um, sorry, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, and I guess that's the question, right? Is like uh, um, it was it was uh, banned by the FDA. Uh, tar, so it's it, so it's really it was a regulation uh it was a regulations kind of thing like they they really should have been following um you know the been following the rules so that the regulators okay so here's it. here's the deal the idea is that if you have more pine tar on your bat you can hold your bat more loosely and that will allow the ball to pop more, and it will not sting your hands when you are using it as so much. you can you can hit harder without pain without injuring your hands. So it's uh, like sort of a boxing glove for your hands. Got it. But then this is a story about a pitcher in 2014 who was penalized for putting pine tar. And of oh, course, there's an era of baseball where people would just doctor the ball, and it was like pretty much legal, right? Like the spitballs and the and the scuff balls that you could do. Um, I mean, baseball has a real sort of legally positive tradition in the sense that, like, something is illegal if it's against the rules. And if it's not against the rules, then it's not illegal. But there's also hundreds of years of rules <laughs> and of all sorts of situations, right, in order to govern these sorts of things. So I guess, yeah, my question is how come they just didn't make a rule against it? How come this is such a big deal? That, that That's, I guess, my question about the incident. How come they just didn't, like, I guess, what, they don't want to void the championship? They don't want to... 
suspend people? Are they just being like, are they just being stupid in terms of their attitude about, well, we don't want to punish people because they might sue us or something and not recognizing that like sports need heels as well as faces that the fans in your city will be, will be angry, but the fans in the other cities will be happy and that it will continue the sense of conflict that is essential to sports. Right? Like I, I guess what I'm saying is when you come around to it and you see this in the context of other times that the rules of baseball have been violated into in a high profile way. I just wonder why is it that this is a controversial thing and not just like you cheated and now you're punished. Right. Like what's the, what's the complication? I guess I, it's foolish to ask you because I don't think I'm you know the, much I'm more the, than me. I'm, but the, it's just I'm like, the wrong thing. I, all, all I know, yeah. Pete, well, there's, these are good questions. I, and, and uh, we should leave them as an exercise for the reader in the, in the, for the listener in the, in the comments. Um, well, I'm please, you know, weigh in on the, in the comments on the show notes and, and, uh, uh, tell us what you think about, about cheating and why this in particular was, you know, a big deal or, or why not. Um, but, uh, I think we can agree, Pete, that the one thing we've, we've come away with this understanding is that the Yankees suck. <laughs> The thing is, as I don't, as a Yankees fan, that's fine. I don't mind if you believe that, right? <laughs> it doesn't hurt me. It helps me for you to believe that because it it continues to support the notion that their baseball games have outcomes that matter, right? Like that's and that's that creates the sense of shared experience and performance, right? Because then when the Yankees inevitably win again, then there's a, a greater sense of vindication, right? Uh-huh. So, um, no, but I think everybody needs to. Everybody needs even I would say like, you know, you know, the Yankees were are great when they bring up people in their own farm team. And I don't really like it when somebody uses all their money. I mean, did you see Moneyball, Matt? Yeah, of course. And did you find the story romantic, the notion that you could build a sports team from kind of people who are not valued sufficiently by the other teams by being smarter at evaluating like what their skill, their relevant skills and talents might be in a way that kind of steps around traditional prejudice? Yeah, I, um, I, I think so. But the Moneyball undermined it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not I haven't read the Michael Lewis book, but but Moneyball undermined itself by making the, you know, the kind of the final win, uh, like the big feel good moment, a product of, of Phillips more often uh you know doing a bit of like uh from his gut coaching on the field rather than actually you know following the algorithm and following the the predictions of the the quants like like jonah hill but but you know we're we're uh we're you know get getting getting away from the main point which is that the yankees suck so (laughs) i'm glad then you say you're not a sports fan (laughs) (laughs) you know there there really are only two commandments that you need to have your heart one is to to love the love god with all your heart and all your strength and all your soul and the other uh is no smoking in an italian bus stop (laughs) (laughs) all right this has been the overthinking it podcast i have been matt that has been pete uh you have been listening and thank you for that we'll be back next week with more of this until then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject all of sports to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve you're out of here You're out of here. Get out of here.
You're out of here. Bang. You're out of here. Bang, bang, bang. 